That said, John, we, we got Neil on the line here. What do you want to ask him? Do I create the fund first and then bring the deals or <laughs> yeah. is it vice versa? Find a deal mm-hmm. and then quickly create the fund to get investors on board. I would definitely probably recommend, or I would be more willing to work with a group like that, especially if they hadn't done it before, if the fund already existed mm-hmm. and then all they had to do was basically get capital into it. Subsequently, if you go, Hey, you know, we, we've done several of these, you know, I have committed investors, you know, I have a track record talking about ORM. I've removed a lot of that operational yeah. risk. I have a high degree of certainty. You can do it again. And on, on that subsequent ones, then I'm less concerned on what comes first and you should probably do what's most efficient for your, your investors capital. Welcome to the Diary of an Apartment Investor podcast with your host, Brian Briscoe. In this podcast, we bring some of the top professionals in the apartment investing field to discuss various aspects of the apartment investing journey with the sole purpose of educating listeners to make wise investment decisions. The Diary of an Apartment Investor podcast is sponsored by Four Oaks Capital, bringing you high yield returns through apartment complex investing. This is journal entry number 111 and part of our Ask the Expert series. Today, we speak with Neil Walgren and John Paniagua about which comes first, finding a deal or creating a fund, and how to go about vetting deals. And now, the show. Welcome to the Diary of an Apartment Investor podcast. I'm your host, Brian Briscoe with Four Oaks Capital. Very excited for today's show. It's it's another one of our Ask the Expert episodes, and we've got two amazing people on the line with us. We, we got Neil Walgren, and we also have John Paniagua. So introduce you to Neil, our experienced investor. He brings nearly two decades of leadership in operations and capital markets. Prior to beginning his career at Mag Capital Partners, he led a Bay Area real estate investment firm, raising capital for over $200 million in projects. Before that, he was a C-130 pilot in both the Air Force and the Navy, which is unusual, but uh, you know, you've done it. Logging over 2,500 flight hours with combat tours to both Iraq and Afghanistan. He finished his military career as a lieutenant, lieutenant commander in the Navy, and he resides in San Francisco with his fiance and son and enjoys flying and sailing. Neil holds a, a bachelor's from the Air Force Academy and a master's a MBA from Texas A&M and another master's degree from Troy University. So that said, very impressive, Neil. Welcome to the show. Cool. Thanks for having me, Brian. Yeah, this is great to uh, catch up again. I know we talked a little bit. Uh, I, I'm not going to nerd out on on the military parks. That's something we both have uh, in common. But I do want to say thanks for your service. And you know, I've I spent seems like nearly 2,500 hours in the back of C-130s in my career. So um, <laughs> for that, I'm sorry. So <laughs> it's not exactly a first class ride. <laughs> no, it's not. Uh, you know, they they talk about strap hangers in in the military a lot, and I think a lot of times on the back of the C-130s, where we were literally hanging on to straps. And I think yeah, you understand that. But uh, sounds about right. <laughs> as I as I got higher in rank, um, I started realizing that. I could end up in the cockpit just as easy as, as in the back, you know? So I started schmoozing with, with a lot of pilots and, and making friends with a lot of C-130 pilots. And, you know, I'd try to get the invitation to come sit up in the cockpit, but that's, that's just me much, much better view and a much, much more comfortable up there. Absolutely. So. <laughs> All right. So enough about me, let's talk about you. So let's talk about your background and history and basically what got you into apartment investing. So start wherever you want to start and, and lead us up into how you got into, um, and I'm going to say commercial real estate investing because you do more than just apartment investing. 
Yeah, absolutely. Thanks again for having me on the show here. Um, you know, really one thing I like about, especially the commercial real estate world is you, I feel like very few people jump directly into it as a first career. Um, so you end up with a lot of kind of interesting segues on how people sort of fell into it. But I think my experience is really no different than a lot of folks that I've met, um, you know, after, after a flying career, I don't know if you've read rich dad, poor dad, but you know, really I, yeah. I found myself at a point where I realized my, you know, ultimately my, my net worth and my ability to earn were directly tied to my time. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the prospect of getting out of military flying and, you know, maybe getting a job for Delta and flying really, I mean, you know, it, it was okay money, but there's not a lot of upside. There's not a lot of opportunity, you know, mm-hmm. it's kind of same, same deal day in and day out. And there's not a lot of ways to really leverage your talent or talents in a way that you can grow, you know, capital and wealth at a you know faster rate than how mm-hmm. many hours you can <laughs> sit behind a yoke. Yeah. Uh, and really, so that was, that was kind of the, the impetus behind why I was looking for a change and fortunately, uh, gotten uncle Sam to pay for an MBA while I was in the service <laughs> mm-hmm. and, you know, ultimately, um, was in the process of moving back to San Francisco and ended up connecting with an old family friend who had a, really a, a commercial real estate investment firm. And it was kind of an interesting model where the firm, what we did was we focused on, partnering with developers and operators, um, mm-hmm. specialists in both, you know, sub classes of commercial real estate, both in, in geography and asset type. So for example, we would partner with, you know, one guy who specifically had an eye for putting together multifamily, you know, apartment investments mm-hmm. in Northeast Atlanta. Uh, another guy did, uh, you know, multi-tenant retail in the Dallas Fort Worth area. Another one did, you know, land development up in NorCal, converting over to senior assisted living projects. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, a fourth who I actually worked more closely with um, did industrial single tenant net lease investments, uh, largely manufacturing tenants and long-term, long-term lease arrangements uh, focusing on cash flow. But kind of an interesting piece of it was I, I had a chance to really see a lot of different, you know, really very independent, different types of commercial real estate investments mm-hmm. and everything from the underwriting that went through it and how to, you know, kind of position this in a way to raise capital um, from our group of investors. And, you know, got to see a lot of the kind of comparative aspects, um, you know, qualitative there of the different asset types and, and really mm-hmm. the kind of the strengths and weak weaknesses from those. And really, you know, it, I think it, it gave me an early exposure uh, at, at a much you know quicker clip uh, than most folks get when they really you know kind of deep dive just in one asset class um, yeah. you know, for a long time. Now, now comparably speaking, and I, I love the fact that you bring experience in several different property types to the table. Um, do you find it any more or less difficult raising for multifamily than you do for the industrial single lease or for the the the, the land or other areas, other property types that you've raised for? I absolutely, uh, mm-hmm. you know, in my experience, I've seen both personally and, and with other folks, uh, I mean, the, the typical trend is, you know, folks will start investing in liquid markets, stocks, mm-hmm. bonds, you know, yep. maybe even crypto, whatever it might be. And then, you know, usually their, their first foray into real estate is, is a, a you know, a second house, you know, mm-hmm. a, a vacation home, you know, investment property. Yep. And then 
the natural transition typically becomes, Hey, what's, what's slightly bigger, but feels the same. And, and mm-hmm. that's multifamily and yeah. a little ironic just because the valuation is, is significantly different mm-hmm. of, you know, how, how you look at, you know, returns and building value on a multifamily compared to single family. But that does tend to be, you know, just mm-hmm. the, the flow that most people go to, um, you know, fast forward a little bit on the industrial side, that's kind of a foreign element in that a lot of folks just have never set foot in a big industrial building. You mm-hmm. know, a lot of folks, you know, the, the manufacturing that goes on behind the scenes to create the components of, you know, what we see and touch and feel every day, you know, really that that's a, a full level of removal from most consumers and retail investors. Um, so that tends to be a, a little bit more of an education mm-hmm. to kind of show, hey, here, here's the merits of what's going on in this full other asset class that you may not have an exposure to. Yeah. You know, that's something that I I definitely appreciate about multifamily because, you know, most people that we are, you know, courting as investors, most most people that are going to invest with us have at least one point lived in apartments or been around the apartment buildings, you know, Um, I've lived in several different apartment communities myself and it's something that I can imagine, you know, so, mm-hmm. and like you said, with industrial, you know, I, I had one job for a year, you know, in an industrial facility and that's, that's all I know about it, you know, so it, it's not really something that's inside my, my wheelhouse, so to speak. So if I understood you right, you're saying that it, it, it is definitely easier to raise for the multifamily because of that aspect. Is that, is that what you said? I, I think especially for folks newer to investment in the commercial real estate space, it almost always, uh, you know, the first go-to investment is multifamily. And then once they get comfortable with that, then they typically will start venturing out into other asset classes. Okay. Interesting. All right. Now, as far as the the different asset classes are, are involved, what do you like about industrial and what do you like about the other asset classes that may you may not see in multifamily? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, you know, every asset class has risk. Um, mm-hmm. And, it, you know, one thing I like about the industrial is it's a concentrated risk that you can really, I mean, kind of wrap your head around in a mm-hmm. perhaps more concentrated, identifiable way than, you know, say a value add multifamily that just has a lot of moving pieces. Just to use an example for a long term, you know, net leased industrial um, project. Mm-hmm. Typically, they're manufacturing tenants. Usually, we're signing new, brand new 15 to 20, 20 year leases. Mm-hmm. They have annual rent bumps built in. So, a lot of that value add component has already been pre negotiated. So, you know, those rents are going up. And then on the expenses side, how do you control unknown expenses in a full net lease? Um, you know, one of the things I like about that piece is the tenant's responsible literally for 100% of the expenses. You mm-hmm. know, taxes double. It's not on us. It's on the tenant. Uh, insurance, you know, premiums change. It's on the tenant. Maintenance, upkeep, and even to include roofing, pavement, landscape, all those expenses, if and when they come up, um, continue to fall on the responsibility of a tenant. So you, you as a, an investment group have a very predictable, mm-hmm. uh, increasing on an annualized basis um, set of cash flow streams while still building value through the structure of that lease. Yeah, I think that's that's definitely appealing. You know, one tenant is paying in a large bill, and you know, as long as they're, as long as that company or that that uh, organization is doing well and can pay the bills, 
you know, very predictable rent bumps built in and 15 to 20 year leases and no surprise expenses. There, there's a lot, lot to say about that and a lot to be desired in, in that. So yeah, that said, let's, uh, let's talk about your, your big burning why, you know, what's, what's your motivation yeah. for all of this? I, I like a challenge, mm-hmm. um, you know, yes. and honestly, I, I like, a you know, I like taking on uh, a healthy amount of risk. I mm-hmm. mean, really just to use an aviation term, you know, we, we used uh, operational risk management every time we'd mm-hmm. go fly and say, Hey, there is inherent risk, just getting in a plane and deciding to take off. But what, what are those risks and can we analyze them and feel comfortable about the, you know, the unknown uh, mm-hmm. extent of what each of these risk categories have. And, you know, taking that kind of, um, you know, risk analysis component and pairing it with real estate, you know, I found there's significant upside if you're willing to take controlled calculated risks mm-hmm. in a way that you can build immense value. And honestly, you know, just the, the idea of raising capital, building wealth for your investors, building wealth for yourself, legacy wealth, and doing that, you know, in in tandem, side by side, I, I just get a huge amount of satisfaction from that. And really, that's that's the why that drives, you know, why I do mm-hmm. this, and really why I made that transition. Yeah, I love it. And there, you know, being military myself, I I see the, you know, we just say ORM, the operational risk management, how it applies. You know, it's it's yeah. one of those things where you know you, you talk about it. It's it's built into every step of of flying aircraft. It's it's built into yeah. every step of military operations. Hundred percent. You you're definitely looking at the risk. You're looking at how to mitigate the risk, and how to still accomplish your mission even though the risk is there. And another thing, you know, tying one other thing together, you say in commercial real estate, I found this to be true. You know, most people don't jump into commercial real estate as their first business, and I, I think. That's one thing that you know military members have as a competitive advantage hopping into real estate is being able to manage that risk. But uh, I, I do want to touch on risk a, a little bit more. I mean, we, we talked about you know the, the benefits of that single single tenant industrial. How would you compare risk profiles between? You know, let's, let's stick with the industrial multifamily. Sure. No, that, that's a fantastic question, and and this coming from you know myself and my own personal investment portfolio. I have about you know roughly about fifty percent in the in the industrial space just because mm-hmm. you know I'm I'm hands on very close to that, but I still have about twenty five to thirty percent in, in multifamily value add. Mm-hmm. Um, so I absolutely see the merits on both. Mm-hmm. You know, on a on a multifamily, especially a value add, you're coming in, and your 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 risk really comes into you know the real estate's important, the demographics are important, and the team is so important. You know, mm-hmm. and and you're. There's a lot more, in my opinion, operational risk in those, really in those investment types. There's just a lot of moving parts, right? Mm-hmm. A lot that that either all goes right together or can, you know, if if one of those individual components that we just mentioned isn't, you know, up to snuff, the whole investment can go off the rails. Yep. And so, and those, and those deals where really, you know, you're analyzing the team and you're analyzing demographics, mm-hmm. uh, you're looking at, hey, you know, I, I want to ha- make sure I have a city that's growing that can yep. support this increased rent that I'm, I'm proforming in my underwriting uh, that can support, you know, the increased occupancy mm-hmm. and I have market data to support it. And then I have the right team in place to execute and actually create that value that I think, think we can do. Uh, conversely, in a, in a single tenant industrial, that, that risk really, uh, the, the bones of the real estate, far less important. You know, mm-hmm. it's, it's a metal building. Right. And then, and also the location far less important. Cause you're really, you're, you're yeah. not, 
making the investment on, you know, what patch of land uh, that manufacturing plant is on. And, and let's be honest, a lot of them are kind of tertiary, you know, mm -hmm. and, and you are, you, you are concentrating that, that cash flow is structured by the lease and that lease, the risk of, of that lease is cash flow is structured by the creditworthiness of the tenant. So mm -hmm. what we do on that side is we actually have a, a three-man team internally in-house, vertically integrated to fully do credit analysis, very deep dive um, of every single tenant company of the real estate we're contemplating to buy. So mm -hmm. they they look at everything from, you know, standard, you know, type of financial analysis, you know, financial summaries, you know, balance sheet, you know, debt loads, you know, quick ratios, all that. But then they go deeper and they actually, they'll, they'll interview the C-suite. How, how are you using the proceeds of, you know, mm -hmm. uh, oftentimes they are selling us the real estate and leasing it back. Mm -hmm. So they'll, they'll say, Hey, you know, how are you using the proceeds from this sale to reinvest yep. into the company? Are you paying down debt? Are you giving the owners a, uh, you know, a <laughs> bunch of equity to walk away and spend their time in Tahiti? I mean, it's important to see, Hey, what is the financial picture of this tenant company? And what have they done historically and how will they continue to continue that in the future? Yeah, I like that. You know, so so if I'm hearing you right, it's less about bricks and mortar, it's less about patches of land and location. It's more about that tenant. That one I mean, since you're especially since you're doing the single, single tenant industrial space, right? Absolutely. Yeah. Okay. And you know, and if you choose a winner, they can be fantastic, you know, mm -hmm. and oftentimes they grow. And what's neat is you can actually create value in that space different than in a multifamily where you're, where you're creating value through rents and through occupancy mm -hmm. on a single tenant, as that tenant increases in, in financial strength, let's mm -hmm. say the revenues increase and they, they maybe get bought by a larger parent company that creates what's called credit enhancement. And so you actually create value just by increasing the strength of that tenant, which is not, not so much a factor when you're looking at residential renters mm -hmm. and multifamily. Which, uh, in, in my mind, I make the connection saying on the back end, you know, when and if you're going to sell it, you know, you have a better credit profile on the tenant, which means you can probably sell it for a little, little higher, you know, a little lower cap rate because it's uh, yep. it's a lower risk. Absolutely, interesting. Yeah. So just yeah. a different way of of building value still in that commercial real estate space. Yeah. Now, now one one more foray into you know compare and contrast, you know, looking at risk of you know recessions and downturns. Typically, every property type in commercial real estate is affected by downturns. Um, could you, you know, compare and contrast what you've seen in between industrial and multifamily? Yeah, and I mean, a lot of it comes down to what class of real estate you have. Mm -hmm. You know, in in multifamily, you know, I'll, my personal risk profile, I don't invest in class A multifamily because mm -hmm. when incomes get squeezed, uh, you know, ultimately you are putting downward pressure on class A tenants to move to class B. And then the same way when times get better, you have upward pressure from class C um, tenants in multifamily to move up to class B. So we, you know, I typically like to invest in those, you know, kind of mid mid range class B projects. And mm -hmm. the same goes with industrial, you know, there, there is class A, very specialized, very expensive, uh, you know, industrial real, real estate. Mm -hmm. And it might be, you know, Amazon fulfillment centers with, you know, Wi-Fi and laser and, and uh, you know, LIDAR and I mean, all sorts of just crazy mm -hmm. technologies built in. But, you know, in the event that you really, you know, got squeezed in a, in a deep recession, 
if that you know real estate went dark, you're sitting on a very high basis mm-hmm. uh, and a very specialized piece of industrial that might be harder to release. Um, yeah. So instead, you know, we focus in that kind of mid-range, you know, usually 90s build, um, you know, 80s, 90s mm-hmm. uh, build real estate that tends to be a little more adaptable. You know, mm-hmm. almost any sort of manufacturing company could come in and you know configure the space in a way that works for them. So yeah. that's that's the the type of you know more adaptable mm-hmm. you know, real estate profile that that I like to target. Yeah, I like it. I like it. And there, there are a lot of things that I, I just don't know about industrial. I mean, I kind of look at the macro perspective, you know, and during during the COVID downturn that we've had, industrial has actually fared extremely well. Oh yeah. Yeah. So, you know, multifamily's taken a little bit of a hit. But you know, if you look at the the big, big property types, you know, the multifamily, the industrial, the retail, and yep. the hotels. Is there one more office? Yeah, office as well. So you look at all those spaces. I think industrials by far perform the best. Multifamily is probably second place. I could pull up stats, but followed by by retail and office have taken big hits. So yeah, I mean, speaking just empirically from our direct portfolio, I mean, we had literally of twenty four you know investment properties, twenty four mm-hmm. separate tenants all just all were deemed essential, you know, mm-hmm. in their res- respective states, all continue to operate, uh, continue to pay rent. And mm-hmm. I mean, they're creating products that tend to be part of the kind of essential gears of commerce, you know, mm-hmm. and just to use some examples there, you know, frozen food manufacturers, there are aerospace yeah. parts manufacturers for government and military aerospace systems. They are, uh, you know, contract, uh, one of our tenants was a contract hair and uh, skin, a contract manufacturer, meaning they would get the recipe from a retail focused brand and create, say, 100,000 gallons of this, you know, skin cream, sell it to like, say, a Revlon, you know, Mm -hmm. who'd sell then to the consumer. But we find the farther you are away from the end user, mm-hmm. the more resilient industries tend to be in terms mm-hmm. of not being affected by, you know, things like COVID. So interesting. Interesting. All right. Well, that, that's uh, definitely fascinating. So I mean, we talked about kind of the the range of stuff. Is, is there one particular project uh, that, that's your favorite that you'd like to discuss? Oh, man. Um, yeah. <laughs> it varies by the week and month. Um, you know, what <laughs> One, uh, you know, one, one project we did that I really kind of enjoyed was we bought this piece of real estate in Fresno mm-hmm. and the, the story behind it was really neat. It was, it was a bit more of a turnaround tenant mm-hmm. than we normally do. Uh, the tenant was, it was a, an organic baby food manufacturer. So they would mm-hmm. literally, you know, receive the vegetables and fruits and process it, can it a little bit on their own label, but mostly, um, you know, co-pack it for larger brands, you know, mm-hmm. everything from, you know, Gerber to, you know, white label Walmart brands, um, this and that, you know, and basically just do it for these manufacturers as needed. And these guys, they, they really had a, a neat story as a tenant that really kind of resonated with me mm-hmm. in that they, um, you know, they had grown, they had this uh, full privately owned, uh, they had grown this, this company from scratch, uh, the owner in 2002, he founded the company. And then 2016, their main uh, manufacturing facility actually burned down to the ground in the mm. biggest fire that the town had in recorded history, just outside of Fresno. And wow. literally, I mean, the pictures of this thing, it was like a, you know, category five alarm fire. I mean, mm-hmm. just burned down to the studs. And so they, they ended up, I mean, really going out of their way. They, they didn't lay off a single employee. They scrapped together. They were able to get some temporary manufacturing going in some of their, their storage, mm-hmm. uh, small storage buildings 
and ultimately built a new building and mm -hmm. they had to, you know, take on some debt to get this built, you know, inspect out the way they wanted. But at the end of it, they sold us the real estate in order to kind of pay down some of the debt they took on mm -hmm. to get it up and moving and then leased it back. And yeah. I mean, really seeing how a, this, this company went to just bent over backwards to keep their, their staff in place, uh, to work with the town. They actually mm -hmm. won a, an award for small business of the year while they were doing this. Wow. Uh, yeah. I mean, it was just, just the, the community rallying around them and to be able to buy real estate like that, that, and then turn around and maintain that relationship with that same organization as your long-term tenant, uh, really was, it was pretty rewarding. And they've, they've grown dramatically since we bought that about a year ago. Yeah. COVID was, was a good year for them. I mean, you know, baby food was essential and they, they've remained operation operational yeah. and, you know, feeding mothers or organic baby food. And uh, yeah. yeah, just kind of a, kind of a neat transaction to be a part of. Nice, nice. Yeah, incidentally, um, you, you mentioned it a little bit, but just for, for some some of the listeners who are less familiar, that the sale and leaseback is, is very common, and it, it frees up capital for the company. I mean, they're, they're still going to pay a lease instead of a mortgage, but they can at least tap into some of that capital to be able to use it wherever else. So it's very, very common in, in other spaces. But all right, well, that said, Neil, what's, what's next for you? We're growing our, our investor group. I'm investing personally in, in different asset classes. Mm -hmm. um, currently writing a book actually with with nice. my brother on you know kind of some of the nuances of of the industrial space for you know private individual investors that you know might not have exposure to it. But you know ultimately, if you're interested in learning more, um, you know our, our website uh, Mag Capital Partners is www.magcp.com, mm -hmm. or just drop me a note. You know I'd love to hear your thoughts or questions. Neil N E I L at magcp.com. All right. And we'll, we'll make sure we have links to those in the show notes so that anybody can can reach out to you. That's All right. It. So we're going to shift gears real quick and uh, bring John on the line. You know, John has a master's and PhD in mechanical engineering. He's worked at Northrop Grumman Sapient and is currently at the New York Stock Exchange as a software engineer consultant in regulation and technology in regulation technology. Currently works on Wall Street in financial services as a senior technology manager with risk management and machine learning certifications. Uh, he's flipped and staged houses in the past three years. He currently owns a single family property in Jericho, New York, and is also been a general and limited partner in 300 plus units in both Virginia and Georgia. So that said, John, welcome to the show. Thank you, Brian. It was, it was a pleasure hearing you. I have a million questions for you. Yeah. Well, hey, before, <laughs> we, get to, yeah, before yeah. we get to the questions, John, tell everybody a little bit about yourself. Sure. I started as an engineer back in 1984 in Northrop Grumman, and I worked in naval, building naval aircraft as an engineer. Mm -hmm. and then I switched over to space, and that's why you see my background. Yeah. Um, I was uh, big in space. And then in the mid-90s, at the end of the Cold War, I, made, I ended up making a shift. Mm -hmm. So I got into consulting more on the systems engineering side. So, and I got a good sense about risk, risk management. And uh, that's why I, what Neil alluded to earlier, operational risk is, uh, is kind of, I understand that perfectly. Mm -hmm. And then after I switched over to consulting, I then jumped, I found an opportunity in finance and I got into, into Wall Street, New York Stock Exchange. And I've been there ever since. Uh, back in 2017, I actually in 1993, I bought a house that I intended to keep it as a, my uh, retirement house here in Long Island, and I ended up flipping it in 2017. And, and I saw the returns just from doing the single flip. Yep. And that got me really intrigued. 
And then I looked at it further and I said, you know what? I can't scale it. It's mm-hmm. very difficult. You could scale it, but it's the effort is it's a lot of work. Yeah. It's, it's a lot. It's a lot <laughs> yeah. of work. That's an understatement. <laughs> and then I, I had gone to Vegas in, uh, in 2017. And that's where I came across. So you're going to laugh at this. Grant Cardone was in. Mm-hmm. And then he was already um, uh, heavily into multifamily uh, uh, real estate investments on the syndication side. But I read an article of his, it was in Business Insider, and it talked about the numbers. And that's mm-hmm. what got me into multifamily, because I realized it's all about the numbers, you know, mm-hmm. spreading out the risk, going to higher level number of units, things you can do there that you cannot do with uh, single family homes. Yeah. And that was it. And that's how I got into it. And in 2019, I, I make the complete dive. And I realized working full time, I looked at some properties here in New York and New Jersey mm-hmm. and it just didn't add up for investors. The numbers, you run the numbers, the cap rates mm-hmm. are so tight. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then the, the unit cost, I mean, I, I, I have a question later for Neil about that, how quickly vetting it out. So that, yeah. I, I ran my numbers. I looked at it and I said, it doesn't make sense. So I had to look outside New York. And that's how I then came across. And I realized I needed a mentor. So I ended up getting two mentors. One was uh, Phil Caprin. Mm-hmm. So he's a Navy guy, ex-Navy guy, yep. special weapons CC. And the other one was Hunter Thompson from the capital raising side. Mm-hmm. And it was there that, you know, then I realized that I got into three deals as I realized the best way for me was as joint venture. I write about this in a book I'm going to have coming out. It's a, I've written a chapter in the book, small chapter, but it's going to talk about how to become, how to invest in multifamily while working for full time as a GP and LP because I believe in investing in deals that you're a general partner in. I've also invested in deals as LP also, because I realized uh, besides just stocks and bonds, and you know, I was so used to capital markets at the New York Stock Exchange, I never realized on the real estate aspect of it, especially multifamily syndications. And as of today, uh, after listening to Neil, I definitely agree on the industrial side. I was looking at storage, you know, I'm looking to kind of diversify after, so definitely storage and, and industrial is an area I'm going to be looking at. Nice. Nice. So one, one, one quick question for you, and then we'll roll into to your questions. You know, what is your big burning why? What's your motivation? It, it's, a, it, it, it's really, it's a combination of financial freedom mm-hmm. being and then bringing value to investors, to your investors, mm-hmm. you know, and also providing people improving their lives on the, especially on the value add side. Mm-hmm. I just can I just tell you a quick story. I, yeah. I remember when I was studying for my master's at Columbia, 1993. You can imagine what New York was like back then, because I used to go from Long Island, Beth Page, Long Island, all the way Northrop Grumman. I used to go to school at night, and I went into Columbia, on mm-hmm. uh, that area. And I remember seeing the building, multifamily buildings there, and the conditions that were in. Fast forward to you know twenty years later after G, uh, Rudy Giuliani and and uh, Michael Bloomberg, what they did was uh, paved the way for investors. Mm-hmm. Investors were buying up these properties and enhancing people's lives, and of course, in return, they got you know they were able to get market rates. You know, but they were able to get the returns for their investors. So I realized, I said, you know, I saw how things change is amazing. If you look at it now, I hope, you know, New York doesn't go back right now because they're pursuing policies mm-hmm. that are very anti-investor, anti-landlord, unfortunately. 
but but getting back to that, that's the reason why it's the opportunity is a combination of those three things: financial freedom, value add for investors, yeah. and that's what Neil alluded to earlier, and improving people's lives. That's what's yeah. really driving me. That's nice. And it's one thing that you know, real estate is is I think you look in the Venn diagram, all three of those areas come together with with real estate and multifamily. I mean, you're you're making places better and yeah. you're you're improving other people's bottom line because they're investing with you. And you know, by by helping all those other people, you know, you're also bringing yourself up and earning earning good returns yourself as well. So, you know, that's one thing that I I really really love about this space. But uh, yeah. Oh. That said, John, we we got Neil on the line here. What do you want to ask him? Oh my God! <laughs> so, so Neil, um, uh, so the question is in terms of like funds, creating a fund because that's what I'm focusing on right now. Because I know there's a lot of uh, money here in the Northeast that's looking is leaving, just like out in the West Coast, money's mm-hmm. leaving California, and uh, I'm right now focusing on creating a fund. You know, uh, the the question I, I'm I keep hearing both sides of this. Do I create the fund first and then bring the deals, try to get the deals, or yeah. is it vice versa? Find a deal mm-hmm. and then quickly create the fund to get investors on board. Yeah, it's a chicken and an egg there. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, my, my my experience, so I've never created a fund directly, but we've worked with a lot of funds who invest in our deals, right? And that those funds might be you know, larger, larger groups, or, or a lot of them are actually, you know, kind of small, basically fund pooled groups of equity, you know, structured in, in a number of different ways that come together uh, and often will invest as a single entity into, mm-hmm. you know, our investment deals, you know, from that side, I would say that the first fund, like most projects is the one that's going to hit, you know, hit snags. Mm-hmm. Um, right. You know, if you're from a GP's pers- perspective, you know, if I was talking to you and you were asking me that question and saying, Hey, I got, I got guys who have capital and want to put money in and I'm planning on making this fund, I would definitely probably recommend, or I would be more willing to work with a group like that, especially if they hadn't done it before, if the fund already existed mm-hmm. and then all they had to do was basically get capital into it. Subsequently, if you go, Hey, you know, we, we've done several of these, you know, I have committed investors, you know, I have a track record. Now I've kind of, you know, talking about ORM, I've removed a lot of that operational risk saying, Hey, you know, you've, you've trained, you've, you've practiced, you've, um, you know, ultimately executed on this before I have a high degree of certainty. You can do it again. And on, on that subsequent ones, then, then I'm less concerned on what comes first and you should probably do what's most efficient for your, your investors capital. Perfect. Yeah. Cause that's okay. That's because that's what I'm doing right now. I'm going to be focusing on that right now. Okay, perfect. And then um, in terms of, um, uh, let, let's say, for example, uh, vertic- vertical integration. So I'm looking at right now, focusing on deals in a certain area because it, I'm finding that to make it easier to, instead of hiring a property manager in different areas of the country mm-hmm. and also contractors, when you do the value adds to do the contracting work, what I'm discovering is easier. It's, it, it, you're better off becoming an expert in one area. Uh, this is again multifamily sure. area, and uh, and then creating a vertical, integrating you know all the other pieces into one company. Yeah, um, is as MAG Partners done that? Are they doing that? Absolutely. And, uh, you know, I'll even take it a, a step higher, you know, not just specifically to our, our group, you know, what, 
what we see a lot, you know, both groups I, I've been a part of and also have invested with, you know, tend, tend to usually start with one or two key principles that have a, a definite expertise for putting together a deal, you know, maybe managing a small scale deal, but they're going to quickly run into scale issues, right? right? And, you know, and you kind of force through necessity, whether it's payroll and just, you know, not having that certainty of deal flow to, you know, kind of outsource a lot of those critical functions like, uh, you know, property management. One, one of the the risks I found is when you do contract that out, it, it comes down to, yes, you have a contract for service, but where does the priority of your project fall on the, you know, basically bandwidth of attention of that property manager, right? Correct. And, you know, the, the more deals you have with them, the more clout you have, and you're going to work your way up. But on those early ones, I mean, let's be honest. Yeah. You know, if you, if you got one 40 door multifamily that they're managing, I mean, you're pretty low on the totem pole. They're almost certainly going to have folks with, with a lot more doors with them that they're going to pick up the phone first. Right? right. And, you know, and that's just, it's just the nature of life. Um, so, you know, from an investor standpoint, you know, you really want to see how quickly you can scale up to the point where you can bring, especially that property management piece in house. Mm-hmm. You know, on, on my last firm, our, our principal had a hard, fast rule. He said, you know, pretty much, I don't care what the deal, I won't look at a multifamily less than 80 doors because right. less than that, it's hard to justify the cost of having property management in-house, at least one person, right? right. And he said, even if the deal makes sense completely, the, the additional risk of not fully controlling that property management piece was a, a risk that, that this gentleman wasn't willing to accept in his, you know, basically an investment thesis. So, and that was fair. Um, so we, we really, we only looked at, you know, small, midsize and higher that were large enough to at least be able to pencil out a full-time property manager on the property. So that said, you know, on that capital, you know, it's not, not always even just, just property management, you know, as we grow, you know, we found we're able to make our deals slimmer, trimmer, and more efficient by vertically integrating things like, for example, even, even a, a controller, right. You know, for a long time, we, we contracted out our finances. There's a lot less moving parts in terms of balancing the books uh, right. on a single tenant at least because right. the expenses are directly paid by, by the, the tenant. And so we said, hey, you know, we, we can actually keep payroll low and we outsourced a lot of it. But what we found was, you know, there was still books had to be balanced and, you know, we were able to pay out quarterly. But what we found was there was there was a push and a desire from our investor group to say, hey, we would love monthly distribution yeah. Yeah. and there's less churn in a single tenant net lease structure. And we found, hey, you know what? we can finally get to a point where we vertically integrate even just the controller. Now mm-hmm. we can, you know, basically have the resources in house to be able to balance those books, do monthly distributions and the satisfaction of our investor group. I mean, went up significantly. Now we can have questions answered, you know, within 30 minutes instead of a 24 hour turnaround. And I mean, it's just better customer service we are able to provide. And, you know, the more pieces that you can bring that in uh, you know, just one last bit, we brought when we brought our credit analysis piece in house. That was huge because we used to contract out to a, a small group to do our, our credit analysis of the tenants, and we said, "Hey, you know what? We're able to actually require tenant financials from the tenant on a quarterly basis." Right. <laughs> and you know, this isn't cost effective if we have to pay an outside group each time to look at it. So we said, right. "Hey, let's let's bring this in house." 
Now we have experts, we have continuity, you know, they're able to see trends a lot easier, um, you know, and just ultimately a better value that we're providing to both the project and the investors. Nice. Great. Nice. I love it. Neil. And then the last question is um, what's your process for vetting deals? Let's say on the multifamily side, you know, how do you go about vetting a deal? So, I mean, I'll, I'll talk about myself putting an investor hat on, um, right. you know, I'm personally, I'm team first. Uh, I will absolutely mm-hmm. vet the team before I even look at the deal. Uh, so I go team, uh, then I go Metro and then I go project. Um, and that, you know, if, if I was to put waiting on it, I'd probably put 60% on the team. And, you know, I know everyone's a little different on that. Some people, you know, love to see the the numbers pencil out for that diamond in the rough, but I'm kind of under the impression that there's, there's so many people chasing opportunity, especially in the multifamily space yes. that your, your odds of just finding that diamond are pretty low. Right. Mm-hmm. And, and what I find what tips the scales between, you know, a successful project and one that, that peters out is, is having that right team in place. And, you know, how, how do you vet that team? For me, it's, it's referrals first, you mm-hmm. know, I, I love asking folks, especially if they've, they've done a number of investments, like give me your top three GPs. And mm-hmm. I don't, I don't care the deal type. Just give me the top three people you love working with. It comes with conservative assumptions. It comes with good communication, you know, and like delivering what they say they're going to. And instantly, I don't care who you are. Everyone who's, who's invested with a number of groups always has their favorites. And it's mm-hmm. fun. It's fun to collect that short list. And I'm like, these are the people I want to start with. And so after I, I look at that piece, then I'm looking at Metro, you know, I look at Metro's where the data supports it. You know, there's a lot of free market reports out there. You know, I look at a little bit of the story, you know, I want to say, Hey, would, would I want to move a company here? You know, do I, do I like this area? You know, I'll go and either call, call a friend who lives out there. Hey, what do you feel about this? You know? And like, does this feel like it has the energy going into it? Do the numbers support it? You know, and then finally look at, at the deal, you know, and the deal it's, it's going to vary so much from Metro to Metro, you know, the numbers, it's, it's hard to have <laughs> apples to apples comparison, you know, on different, different metros. But if you have an operator with a track record in that area, just say, Hey, you know, give me, give me the skinny on this. How does this shake out compared to the previous projects you've done? Yeah. Right. Uh, you know, and, and most of the time they'll be frank with you and they'll go, Hey, we're seeing a lot of opportunity or, Hey, maybe, you know, deals are drying up. They're hard, harder to find. And, you know, mm-hmm. then I might be a, a little slower to invest, but that's kind of my one, two, three on, on how I look at, you know, new projects for due diligence. Yep. Team market deals. I love, it. love yep. it. Well, we're, we're about out of time guys. So I got one more question for each of you and, and Neil, I'll, I'll let you go first. How can our listeners learn more about you? Check out our, our website first. Again, www.magcp.com. Drop me a drop me a line. Um, my email is Neil N E I L at magcp.com. I love chatting with folks, uh, just hearing your thoughts, uh, questions, whatever it might be. Awesome. And John, same question for you. How can listeners learn more about you? Yeah, uh, my website is uh, www.onewayholdingsllc.com, okay. and you can drop me an email at info at www.onewayholdingsllc.com. All right. And we'll put links to both of those, uh, the website and your email address in the show notes. And that way, you know, anybody listening to this can just tap and find out more about Neil or find out more about John. So that said, thank you so much to both of you for coming on the show today. I think we talked a lot more about uh, non-multifamily stuff than we usually do, but I was captivated and I hope everybody else uh, who's listening was too. (laughs) 
Thank you for listening to the Diary of an Apartment Investor podcast today, brought to you by Four Oaks Capital. If you'd like to know more about how to invest in apartment buildings or want to be a guest in our show, visit our website at fouroakscapital.com slash podcast or email us directly. If you're still listening, you obviously like the show, so pull out your phone, tap subscribe, and leave us a five-star rating on your favorite podcast app. And we'll see you again next week.